Well, let me encourage uh, those of you who are uh, dudes in our midst. Next week is our men's retreat. This, this is outstanding time for you to get to know some of the guys in our church. If, if you don't have some really good connections with other men in the church, next week is an outstanding opportunity next weekend. Uh, if you'll go, you'll find other guys sit around and talk about football and God together and find out that they are not the same thing. So it'll be a good weekend. We, um, we have coming uh, probably top 10, definitely top 25 of this guy ranks in the best speakers for men's retreats that you can get for no money on short notice. So... Um, <laughs> Yes, you're looking at him. I'll be at the men's retreat. Uh, guys, I'd love for you to come. I think, I think you'll be encouraged. Um, we also have coming up in October, and you've been seeing little hints about this, our, our 25th anniversary celebration as a church family. And, I, and I, hope you'll, I hope you'll mark that and protect that date on your calendar, the 19th of October. If your neighbors have been hinting about going to church or you think they might, we're going to be down at Joyner Park. It'll be a great invite. And um, also, people that used to be here who've moved on to serve God in other places in our community or outside of it, uh, pass that invitation along. We want to celebrate with everybody who's had a chance to be part of North Wake. And, you know, 25 years is a long time, it seems like. Um, many of us have been here. For the duration, or a few of us have been here for the duration. A number have been here since 10 years ago. We, we built this facility and moved from across the way. We used to worship in Building 2, uh, which was the, the old funeral home place. I don't even know what you call where the funeral home worship services are, chapel, I guess. And uh, um, those were some really interesting experiences over there. I tried to find some photographs. I went rummaging around this week trying to find photographs of worship, a little snapshot of what worship was like in the early life of our church. And I can only find one photograph. I'm going to show it to you briefly because it's kind of disturbing. Okay. There it is. Uh, we're going to move on. Um, that, that was me dressed as an elf leading worship in the old worship center. So, um, you know, looking back like that, you, you know, you, it's fun just to reminisce. Sometimes you learn things that you remember things that you never want to do again. Um, sometimes you learn things, you remember things that were good and where God was really at work. And what, what we want to do this morning is look at a far more redemptive snapshot of, of the church. We're going to go way back, way farther back than just North Wake. We're going to go back to the, to the time when Jesus had just ascended back to heaven after he rose from the dead, right after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church for the first time. Um, and we're going to we're going to not just reminisce about what the church was like, we're going to see an example for us to follow. And uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, I'd like to pray that we heed the Spirit's teaching this morning through the Word. So bow with me, please. Um, Father, have mercy on us. Mark us deeply as your people. Brand us to look 
like your son, just like you want us to look. So that the world that watches us and wonders about us might see in us uh, Jesus. So by word and spirit this morning, your great tools, um, Father, shape us to be your people. And we, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying the book of Acts. And in the fourth chapter, this snapshot of the church comes to us. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace. Great grace was upon them all. Um, I'd like to just focus today on two things we see as we look at this snapshot of the church. There are two things that come out right away in these opening verses of the passage we're going to look at today. First of all, it says, they were those who believed. They believed in Jesus. They believed that he had walked among them, that he had taught them, that he had died on the cross for their sins, and that on the third day he was raised from the dead. They believed this. That's all they had in common. They believed and loved Jesus. Okay? Bound them together as a people. And there's, there's special emphasis here on belief in his resurrection. Okay? It says that that's what the apostles were giving their testimony. Um, that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, this, this belief had already gotten them in trouble with the religious leaders. You remember just a, maybe a page earlier in your Bible, the beginning of this very chapter, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the, the disciples, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees did not believe that any resurrection from the dead was possible. And so they found the apostles' proclamation of Jesus' resurrection, it says, annoying. Um, the resurrection was central to their faith such that they were willing to run up against opposition because of it. Because the resurrection changes. It changes everything. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that that changes everything. If you give assent to that, um, that changes everything. So that Paul says these kinds of things about believing in the resurrection. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Remember uh, back in Acts chapter 1, they had to, re they had to replace uh, Judas who had committed suicide, right? They needed a 12th disciple. And one of the things they said um, in, in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Acts, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, until the day when he was taken up from us, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay, Because the resurrection changes Everything. 
And honestly, when, when we engage conversations with our friends who don't know Christ, this is something we need to talk about. Okay? Uh, we often do a beautiful job talking about Jesus' uh, sacrificial death on the cross, and that's so important. But the resurrection is a big part of it. And that's what the disciples understood. If you buy that he rose from the dead, that's this great validating stamp of God on everything else that he said and did. So it's not a bad conversation to have with your, with your unchurched friends. You know, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if they give assent to that, then everything else seems to fall in place. Um, hopefully, uh, when Rob Craig gets back this week, I'll have him post some resources for you to share with your friends online about, about the resurrection. You can, you can find stuff there. We'll have it on our website. Um, but it's central to the witness of the apostles and central to what these people believed. They were believers. First thing you see, everything that we're going to see in the rest of the passage flows out of this. They were believers in Jesus in his death and resurrection on their behalf. But the second mark of this early gathering of the church, this, this snapshot we're looking at, is that they loved each other. Um, right, right out of the bat, again, full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Okay. Um, they shared real friendship, is the way one, one writer put it. Um, they, they cared about each other so much it says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It wasn't just a unity of belief, though that fueled everything that follows. It was also a unity of love and care for one another, such that they would share their stuff. They laid down the right of their, to claim their possessions as their own in order to meet one another's needs. They... They loved one another more than they loved their stuff. Okay. And these two marks of the church, belief in Jesus and his resurrection and love for one another, they're, they're inseparable. Okay. It's fascinating. There's a, last year in September, there was a man in Brazil developed what doctors uh, diagnosed as pathological generosity. Okay. If, you, if you gotta get something, okay, get this. This is really fascinating. Um, it was published, an article was actually published in the journal Neuroscience. Doctors described in that journal the strange case of a 49-year-old man from Brazil who is identified as Mr. A. Mr. A had a remarkable personality change after suffering a stroke. His physician said that after the stroke um, had affected the subcortical regions of the man's brain, he suddenly had an excessive and persistent urge to help others. He wouldn't stop giving money, giving money and gifts to people he barely knew. According to his wife, he would buy candy, soda, and food for kids he just met on the street. 
Mr. A claimed that he had seen death from close up and he wanted to be in high spirits for the rest of his life. Mr. A was put on medication for depression, which he said cured his depression, but his pathological generosity remained unchanged. Okay? We are supposed to be like Mr. A, okay? pathologically generous to one another, inexplicably generous to one another. Where we will, if somebody has a need in this church, we would sell our stuff to meet their need. Okay. We, we would do that for each other. Now, um, Luke, in, in the book of Acts, he wants to zoom in on this trait even more. This trait of, of sacrificial love. And, and so he says in the next couple of verses, there was not a needy person among them. Not one. And remember, there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands in the city of Jerusalem who'd become believers. There was not one needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Okay. Now, this is some serious generosity, okay? They sold houses and land. These are big ticket items, okay? They're, they're giving away houses. Now, it's helpful to know that they did this voluntarily, not under compulsion. Bob Duffenbaugh writes wisely, this text does not describe communism as we know it. The communism of our day says, what's yours is mine. But the community of believers in Jerusalem said, what's mine is yours. He says there's a world of difference between those two methods of sharing the wealth. Communism seizes property from those who have. Theoretically, it then distributes wealth among the poor, but this seldom happens. Often those in control of the government end up with much of what they've taken from others. Christianity voluntarily gives property to relieve the needs of those who do not have. So, do you believe in Jesus such that your love for people, especially the people in this room, the church, that your love for these people exceeds your love for your stuff. You'd give up your stuff for these people. Um, so, so powerful was their love that there, was no, there were no needy people among them. Zero needy. If someone had a need, someone else would sell stuff, big stuff, like houses and land in order to meet this need. Now probably, and, and I don't want to diminish this, but probably it was extra stuff. Okay? It's not like somebody saw, he doesn't have a house, so I'll sell my house. Oh wait, now I don't have a house. Excuse me, apostles, I need a house. I just, so, that's not likely how it worked. But you know, it's, it's more like what, um, what Jesus taught. You remember in Luke 3, Jesus said, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So there were people who had more than what they needed. And they were glad to share. They were glad to share. 
They were literally, it seems, following what Jesus had taught them. Now, it's possible that some of you are thinking, okay, so likely they had an extra house they sold. So I'm not going to have an extra house. I'm going to have one really big house. And that way, I'm exempt and I can keep it. Okay. That's a really bad way to think. And I'm going to show you why. We're going to find out why as we walk through the rest of this passage. But you really want to beware of scheming to get around what God requires of you. And let's be clear. He requires of you. If there's, if there's something God requires of you as a follower of Jesus, it's that you love the people in this room. Okay? Jesus said, this is my commandment. This is it. Do this. This is my commandment. Singular. That you love one another as I've loved you. That's our, that's our mark. Look at the snapshot of the church. This is what marks us. What we're known for in this community is that we radically love one another, right? It says um, that they sold their houses. They brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is what love does, okay? Love loosens our grip on our stuff. And, and I like the perspective that Bob Deffenbaugh had on this. He said, being a part of the family is what makes the difference. The early church looked upon themselves as a family, and they lived like a family. Thus, if one member of the family had more than enough possessions and another member had less than enough, it was natural to share these possessions within the family. Private property, he says, is viewed differently within the family than without. Isn't that true? Isn't that true at your family? See, the church is not a club that you join for your benefit. It's a community of love where you lovingly sacrifice for the benefit of others. And that raises this persistent question. Can you be a Christian and not love the church? That's interesting. I saw one estimate that says that 75% of Americans who profess to be Christian don't even attend church, let alone love church. So to answer the question, I, I suppose it's possible to be a Christian and not love the church. I guess that could happen. But that'd be weird, okay? That'd be an aberration from what Jesus intends the church to look like. And don't be a weird Christian. We got plenty of weird Christians, okay? No shortage of weird Christians loving themselves in the church for them. It's all about me. You don't need another weirdo. Be normal. Be a normal New Testament Christian and love these people. These ornery people that God has placed by sovereignty in this room for you to love and for you to be loved by them. Um, John Piper says, believing in Jesus tightens the heart's relationship to people, especially other Christians. 
When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love to things and enables us to do what Jesus told us to do. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Okay. That's, that's what the Savior says should mark us as his people. Now, Luke is going to zoom in on this one piece of the snapshot of the church even more. And he's going to cite a very specific example of someone who is doing this in, in the early church. Okay. He says, Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas here is held up as an example. Okay, He's spotlighted. Be like Barney. Okay, He sold a field. And, and, and I, I wonder why, why Barnabas? Evidently, a number of people were doing this. Why call it Barnabas um, to do this? And a couple of interesting things. He's, it says he's a Levite here. And at different points throughout Israel's history, Levites did not own land. Um, at times they did, at times they didn't. I don't know what the situation was particularly here. But some scholars think that it may have, may have meant that uh, the land he gave was like his gravesite. That that might have been all that he owned, and he sold that. Um, but you know, it might just have been oceanfront property, and really was a significant gift. And so they're, you know, they're excited about that. But I'm betting, from what we know about Barnabas from the rest of the Book of Acts, that it was the heart of loving sacrifice behind this that causes it to be held up as exemplary here. Give like Barnabas, as Luke is saying to us. Because throughout Acts, Barnabas is put forward as a man that lived up to his nickname, the encourager. He, as we read through the book of Acts, you're going to find out that he was an advocate for the new convert, Paul. He was a shepherd of the new Gentile converts in the city of Antioch. He was the one, no surprise, who they trusted money to for the relief of the poor, was sent back to Jerusalem to help with that. The, he was the first partner of Paul on his missionary journeys. He was an advocate who wanted to give John Mark a second chance. We'll see later in the book of Acts. But this, this is where we meet Barnabas. This is where one of the great heroes, little unsung heroes of the New Testament gets his start. Sacrificial generosity to meet the needs of the poor in the church. Okay. Barnabas is a living embodiment of what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16. Jesus said, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, read money, who will entrust to you true riches? Okay. He was faithful with his money. And God used him greatly. So if you're a seminary student, okay, 
perhaps the most significant training that you're getting from ministry right now does not happen in Greek class. It happens when the offering plate goes past. And most of you are doing great, but some of you are failing. And you will not be able to lead the church that you one day want to pastor in generosity, sacrificial love, unless you practice it now, even when you're poor. So Barnabas encourages us in this matter of sacrificial love for the church, for the people in this room. That if there's a need and we can meet it, we'll sell what we have, even if it's of great value to us. Okay? That's how we love at North Wake, right? That's how we roll, right? That's what it means to be part of here. What if I put in the membership covenant? What if we put in the membership covenant of the new members class? I am willing to sell my stuff to meet the needs of others. Would you still join? Sacrificial love is to mark us. Okay. This is one of, the, one of the fundamental marks of followers of Jesus, of the church. Now, having presented this picture to us and Barnabas kind of as the poster boy for sacrificial love, um, now Luke wants us to see a bad example, a, a striking contrast. Let me just read the next story to you goes like this. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, this is in contrast to Barnabas, right? But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose. Now, if you're an intern at North Wake and you think you have a bad job, okay? Watch, this is what, you, what interns did in the early church, okay? The young men rose and wrapped up the body, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, if I'm told that there is a, a, a lost Greek manuscript that says that she was shopping. That's where she was for three hours, in case you're wondering. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So this is, uh, this is quite a story here. Um, 
You want to get this straight, that they were killed, right? They died on the spot instantaneously as an act of judgment by God for lying about the price of a real estate deal, right? This would be like getting put to death for inflating a charitable deduction on your taxes, okay? And it's interesting that about 25% of Americans say they have cheated on their taxes at one time or another. We could have this massive falling out on April 15th of Americans dying all over the place, right? If this is the way God always acts. Um, but it, doesn't it? It seems like such a little thing. The capital punishment was exercised because they fudged on a charitable deduction. Um, Bob Deffenbaugh kind of has tried to flesh out a little fictional scenario to help us think about it. He says, um, suppose Ananias and Sapphira had determined to sell a piece of property like, like the rest of the church and for good reasons. And let's suppose they decided to have the property appraised and learned that a fair asking price was $40,000. Ananias, feeling certain that he can get the asking price of $40,000, mentions to some of his fellow saints that he's going to sell his piece of property. He's going to give $40,000 to the apostles. As it turns out, two supermarket chains want to build a store on that piece of property. And so the price is bid up, and finally Ananias sells his property not for $40,000, but he gets, he gets $50,000 for it. And now comes the decision, what do I do with the extra, the extra ten grand? Do I give this to? Or is this a windfall gift from the Lord? Or do we just decide to hold the money back, saving it for a rainy day? Peter points out, that to have done any of those things would not have been a problem. The decision is made, though, to keep the extra money for themselves. When he, when he gave the money to Peter, Peter asked him, did you sell the property for the 40000 like you said? And Ananias has to make a decision. Does he tell Peter what he actually sold the property for and that he and his wife decided to keep the extra money back? If he does this, he won't look as spiritual as others, like Barnabas, who gave all their money. All the prophets. Or he could lie just a little bit, just a little, little teeny lie, and make Peter think that he had given all. After all, who would ever know? His little kind of fictional embellishment helps us realize how easy it is to slide into these kind of choices. See, they weren't judged for not giving the whole amount, that wasn't the problem. Peter makes that clear in verse 4 when he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? It was okay if they didn't even sell their land. It was okay if they kept some of it. But what they were judged so severely for was lying and saying they had given it all when in fact they had kept a portion back for themselves. And this raises two questions. Why would they do this? Why tell this little lie? And then, why would God do this to them? Why such a severe judgment for what seems to be such a little lie? 
So why, why would Ananias and Sapphira lie like this about something that really seems kind of silly to us? Why, in essence, inflate a charitable deduction? And I think they're caught between two powerful, wrongful motivations. First, they want to be seen as generous. Okay? They want to be seen as generous. And I think this is right at the core of their, of their temptation and their sin. See, Barnabas had just been held up as a role model, and I assume they knew about that. Everybody's like, whoa, Barnabas gave the land. You know, that beachfront property, he gave the land. And everybody's like, ooh, Barnabas, he's the man. And of course, Ananias and Sapphira, they want, they want some of that spotlight. They want to be well thought of. They want people to admire them. What people think matters too much to them. So much so they're willing to lie to pull it off. What people think matters more than their integrity is fascinating. Uh, there was an article just a couple years ago in Sports Illustrated. They followed four young pitchers uh, that were in the Minnesota Twins minor league system at the same time. And um, they were all um, aspiring in the 1990s during the really rampant steroid era of Major League Baseball to make it into the majors. And uh, steroids was one of their temptations. And a couple of these players at least bought into that. And one of them was named Don Nalty. He was a former pitcher for the Twins. And then he made it to the Yankees. And he decided to take steroids. And... Um, says when a supplier first injected Nalty with steroids, he was immediately hooked. And, but now, looking back, he acknowledges that he was a cheater. And he says, why, why did I cheat? He says he was caught up in the win-at-all-cost culture in baseball and fell for the love of money and superstardom. Superstardom. What people would think of him. There's another guy, Jeff Horn. Minor league teammate of Nalty's started using steroids after several mediocre years in the minors. It says he immediately gained muscle, improved his hitting, but was caught after taking a drug test back in 2001. He says he was not lured by money, but by the need to succeed and to prove himself to others. He says, I was looking for personal validation. And he was looking for that in the eyes of others. See, what people thought of them mattered more than their integrity. What people thought for Ananias and Sapphira mattered more than what God thinks. And so they are willing to lie to God, to put the Holy Spirit to the test, as it were. And this temptation stalks us all the time, to care too much about what other people think of us. It stalks us. It was stalking and ensnaring Ananias and Sapphira. We might call it peer pressure. We might call it what the Bible calls it, the fear of man. And Proverbs 29, 25 simply says, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. What people thought mattered too much to them. 
There's a second motivation that I think is embedded in that, and that is that they wanted the money too much. Um, again, Peter says it wasn't wrong that they kept some of the money, but they felt such a strong need to keep some that they were willing to lie about it. Why not just give it all? Okay. They couldn't. They wanted the money too much, it seems. Their love for people was being swallowed up by their love for the money and their love for celebrity and praise. Um, John Ortberg talks about when his kids were little, they did that envelope system thing. Some of you do it or have done it with your kids. A give, save, spend, you know, so on, where you divide your money up. And he says, he thought it was working really well until one day I had a Band-Aid in my arm and my daughter, who at that time was about six, asked, why, why do you have a Band-Aid, Daddy? And he said, I had gotten a medical exam that day to get life insurance. And she said, what's that? And he said, well, Daddy loves you so much and loves the family so much, so if anything were to happen to Daddy, which of course it won't, but if it would, it would provide for you $250,000. And her eyes got really big. And she has a tender heart, and he says, I knew she'd be worried. And she looked up at me, and she said to him, a piece? <laughs> and he said, I'm not sure the right lesson is getting communicated here. See, these two temptations for personal glory and financial gain tend to run together in packs it's fascinating. This is what marked the Pharisees uh, at some level. In Luke 16, Jesus says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They both loved money, it says, and they justified themselves before men. These two things, the personal glory and financial gain, they go together and they tend to grow together like they did in Judas' case. You know, Judas, it's said um, in John's gospel, said that Judas used to pilfer money from the common purse that the disciples had, right? He was like their banker and he would steal money from it. He had no idea where that would one day lead when he would sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So, those two motivations were tangled up. Their love for money and their love for praise were, were tangled up in their hearts. And it caused them to do what, what God judged so severely. Why did God judge this little lie so severely? Um, you know, God, God takes a dim view, a very dim view of lying. It's a it is condemned repeatedly in Scripture. And it makes sense because it's contrary to who God is. About 80 times in the Gospels, the Lord is quoted as saying, I tell you the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
He is full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. The church is called the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world. The saints are built up in their faith as each one speaks truth in love and lays aside falsehood. It's contrary to who God is. In fact, um, Luke intimates here, Peter actually says it, that, that it's the work of Satan. In, in verse 3 of our passage, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay. That that lie was seeded in his heart somehow by Satan himself. Which is really no surprise because Satan is called a liar and the father of lies and a deceiver. Whenever we lie, we're moving away from who God is towards who our adversary is. Whenever we lie. You can add to that 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 this lie was offered up as worship. So that, in a sense, what verse 4 says was true. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. They were offering this false, uh, this false amount to God as worship. Now, if you're a parent... And you've ever had a child who's struggled with lying, you know, that this is a sin that grabs hold of you and refuses to let go. It takes tremendous work uh, to help a child be free of a propensity to lie. And it follows, when it doesn't happen, it'll follow them through school, it'll follow them right into marriage, and it can be a devastating thing. And God here is, by this severe judgment, it is a ferocious protection of his bride. The church. The example of Ananias and Sapphira was intended to safeguard the church from being taken captive to self-love that compromises sacrificial love and the deceit and lying that comes along with it. And so it says in the very last verse, it actually says this twice in our text, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. You, you bet it did. You bet Lying was down in the Jerusalem church after this incident. And it should be, okay? It dishonors our God, and it moves us towards our adversary, the devil. Um, so, could you die the next time the offering plate is passed? April 15th. Is your life on the line? Could be. Admittedly, this is an extraordinary case. God has not followed this pattern precisely throughout history. He's been more gracious to us. But the reason that they drop dead here is to give a stunning warning to the whole church that this is the judgment that waits for those who lie. Every Every sin carries the death penalty. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews 4 lets us know you will not get away with it. Okay? They tested the Holy Spirit. They thought they might get away with it. 
Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's all. It's all out there. God knows it all. Let me pan back to the big picture in this snapshot of the church. The church is to be marked by two things. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Perhaps especially in this case, there's emphasis on his resurrection. Hey, do you believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead on the third day? Do you believe that? If you believe that, that changes everything. If you'll say yes to that, I believe that Jesus did, really, historically, bodily, rose from the dead on the third day, then that changes everything for you. Because his teaching now bears the, the, the validation of God in an undeniable sense, and it's true for you. Do you believe in his resurrection such that you're willing to proclaim this? You're willing to, to share this? You're willing to to have a conversation with somebody at work and say, you know, something, the pastor was talking about something interesting in church this week. He was talking about the resurrection. And uh, I, we've never talked about this. Do you believe that there's a resurrection after, after people die? Do, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And again, we'll put some resources up later this week to help you with that conversation. The church was marked by faith in Christ, his death and resurrection. And they were marked by loving one another sacrificially. Are you sharing your financial resources in order to meet the needs of the people in this room and other believers around the world? Are you, are you sharing your, your money? Are you willing to part with your stuff if someone in this room has a greater need for it? If you have two tunics, would you give to someone who has none? Perhaps this is really where a lot of us live. Are you willing to give your time to care for those in this room to serve them? Can you point to a way that you are serving this church family? If not, how are you honoring Christ's command to love the people in this room? If not with your time. How are you loving them? Paul said that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest, he said, the greatest of these is love. And deception, self-exaltation, and greed, they make this kind of love impossible. And so this morning is a good time to repent of the sins that would rob you of loving the church, even as Jesus calls us to. So the worship team is going to come now and lead us in a closing song. And it is a song about repentance. And if God is pricking your heart this morning, that, that you're not loving the church rightly, um, I would encourage you to make your way down front and, and just symbolically kneel and repent of that sin. Perhaps you want to do it with a friend or one of our leaders that will be in the front rows. They'll be glad to pray with you. This is a good time to turn from our sin towards what Christ is calling us to be as his church, who believe and who love. So 